All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 21. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. We're continuing our series in the book of Acts, and we're following Paul and Silas and this team on their second missionary journey. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would enlighten our minds that you would help us to not only understand, but to embrace the truth of your word. We pray that you would change us wherever necessary, that your Holy Spirit would truly teach us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I like reading the book of Acts for a bunch of different reasons, and one of the reasons I like reading the book of Acts is to see how the church and how Paul oftentimes in particular interacts with the world. Right? It's, it's, it's helpful. It's helpful because we don't always do that very well as Christians. We don't always interact with the world well. Sometimes our heart is wrong. Sometimes our posture is wrong. Sometimes we'll find one way of responding to the world, which is right some of the time, and use that all of the time. You can even check yourself. Like, what's your posture towards the world? Now, to answer that question, you have to define world, right? So how did you define it? What's your posture toward the world? Some of you, no doubt, said, well, um, it's maybe more defensive. Uh, it's more combative because, you know, the world is a system that operates in opposition to God. And you're like, well, I've got I to gotta protect. I've got to defend. I've got to fight. I mean, John says, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. But then others of you said, oh, my posture towards the world is love because for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Because you're not defining world there as a system, but you're, you're defining world as people, right? And so we do have to have a, a comprehensive and somewhat nuanced way of understanding our posture toward the world. But what I find that I think we need more of a correction on, at least in our circles, is that our, our posture, or maybe our heart towards the world, is oftentimes hard because the world seems to be getting worse, right? I hear a lot of Christians say the world's getting worse, or at least in our context, America's getting worse, things are going worse, and I, and I can understand that, right? I can, I can see that, but so we get hard, hardened, right? Hard towards it, not just suspicious, but fearful, and, and, and if not fearful, angry, and if more than angry, we get hateful, or maybe, maybe we're not hostile, maybe we're just indifferent to it. 
but I believe what we see in scripture is that our heart towards the world ought to be warm. Our heart towards lost people should be that of love. In fact, here's the principle. One principle I want us to see in our passage this morning. One principle, very simple. It is this. A true love for God will always produce a true love for sinners. A true love for God will always produce a true love for sinners. Seems like we tend to excel, right, in uh, aspects of the former more than the latter. And so, real simple, simple Father's Day message, which means, it just means it's short, right? It's shorter, I hope, I don't know, you never know. Second service is always different from first. We'll see how it goes. Um, But simple, simple message, one point, right? It's got two parts. First, I want us to see that if we love God and then consequently love sinners, we will, one, we will grieve their idolatry. That's not arrogant. That's not proud to grieve the false religious beliefs of people that you love. So one, we will grieve their idolatry. Number two, we will show them Jesus. If we love God and therefore love our neighbors, love these sinners, we will show them Jesus, okay? So first, we will grieve their idolatry. This is what happens to Paul. Paul winds up in Athens, right, in verse 16. He's by himself. This is the capital city of Greece, right? And it's one of the oldest cities in the world. People always talk about Athens as one of the oldest cities in the world. And and Athens was this super influential uh, mega city, um, education, uh, the, the arts, right? Um, so, and not only that, but like philosophy and religion, right? Various religions, but you know, uh, Greek religion to start with, um, architecture, uh, commerce. It was this major city, and it hit its high point. And by the time Paul is there, it's not as powerful as it once was. It's not as great as it once was. Now, uh, the Romans have overtaken, right? And so now there's a, there's a mixture of things that are happening. Paul gets to this place, and he's grieved. He's provoked. It's, it's not new. Idolatry is not new to Paul. Paul has seen idolatry before. If you remember in Acts 14, when he was in Lystra, he came into some, some really... Uh, up-close interactions with the, 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 the false beliefs, religious beliefs of the people there and of their false gods. So it's not new to Paul. What it is, is it seems to be bigger. I mean, it's, he gets, to, he gets to, to Greece and he is confronted with not just that there is idolatry, but how much and how explicit it all is. I mean, we can think about it in, in its own context, right? So you had the Greek religion, right? The, you had the Greek gods and goddesses and the temples and, and all of that. But then because Rome had overtaken, and so now you had this Roman influence. You had the imperial cult, which meant emperor worship, right? So you had temples for that. You had uh, all kinds of things. You, you had these mystery cults, right? The mystery cults, it sounds like you get a surprise at the end. Like, hey, surprise, mystery. What was the mystery? It's not, it's not good. Uh, the mystery cults, though, it was basically really secretive religion uh, with secretive ceremonies. And so you, communi- you get this special kind of knowledge that leads to some kind of enlightenment or salvation, something like that. So there was this mystery cults, and then you had all the, the various philosophies of the day competing for first place in the hearts of all the people there. 
Paul's running into all of this and more, and it's this idolatry. It's just like, it's like a, a wave coming over him. And I think when we think about idolatry, we think, we think about it as like a historical thing. Idolatry was, right? That was, I mean, you think about it, you think like, oh, yeah, think of statues, think of idols, think of false gods that people bow down to, you think of formalized religion, think of idolatry. We don't always, or we certainly don't always, and I don't think we often think enough about idolatry in our context, outside of some bland, broad sort of generalization. But every culture, every country, every language is marked by idolatry, is steeped actually in idolatry. Wherever Christ is not believed, idolatry reigns. And it takes different shapes today. If we just think about where we're at, right? We think, well, what is an idol? And an idol, right, is, is, a, is a false god to which we pledge our ultimate allegiance. An idol is that thing for which you live and die. It's where you derive your identity. It's what gives you the greatest sense of joy and satisfaction. It's what you sacrifice to and for. And that doesn't have to be a formalized religion, does it? We, in fact, what we tend to take in America is we, we tend to pick and choose and put things together so that we have a way of thinking as individuals. And that's probably our first idol, right, is self. Selfism is the religion, right, where we put ourselves first, we come first. Like, I'm before God, I'm before anybody else. We're looking out for number one. That's an American expression that is deeply rooted in our collective identity, right? The collective identity is this. We're all individuals, isn't that ironic? We're all about ourselves. And so selfism, not just selfishness, but putting the individual, myself, before everyone else is an idol, a false religion of our day. You can think of materialism. Of course, it's easy in our context, right? I mean, this, it's a, I, mean I grew up here. So I understand that, that superficiality and materialism are complementary ideas that people really live a lot of their life by. They want to gain, they want to amass. Maybe it's pleasure. And this is the problem with idols. Idols don't have to be bad things. You think like, oh, well, the idol would be like, you know, Baphomet. <laughs> it's like, it's the devil. It's your false god. Um, no, it can be, you know what? It could just be your family. Right? You could worship your family. You take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. A gift that God gave you, but you turn it into the God-giving life source. We, 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 we put the family up high. Some people put the family up high. Then maybe, maybe you think like, well, no, it's, it's not. We don't, I don't put the family first. Uh, we'll be more precise. Maybe it, you put your children first before everyone else. And how do you know if you do that? Well, what are you sacrificing to your children? What comes first? Because oftentimes family or children or our spouses, right, wind up displacing Jesus and his church, Rather than Jesus saying, well, because of me, there will be a separation. There will be a division between family. It's about who comes first. And so it can be a good thing. It can be family. It can be, listen, some of the biggest idols that are causing trouble are churches and preachers, right? I mean, it's like, just because it's a good idea or a good thing doesn't mean that it isn't causing serious problems. And sometimes the problem is not in the individual being worshipped or set up and exalted, it's in the people exalting them. That's us, right? That's what we do. We tend towards idolatry. So 
Paul is seeing this, but he's seeing it in a, in a dramatic way, and he's feeling provoked, right? That's not angry. Like a lot of people think like, oh, you know, don't provoke me. That's usually followed by a punch in the mouth, right? <laughs> you keep provoking me, I'm going to punch you. And it's like, that's not what's happening here. It's a, it's a stirring up. It's, it, it, it's a grievance, right? But it's different than what we tend to think. Because Paul knows those false gods aren't real. They are effective at deception, but they are not real. They cannot deliver. Paul knows that God's word says in Psalm 135, verse 15, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. And those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust them. The point being, idols promise a lot, but cannot deliver. They can't hear, they can't see, they can't speak. There's no life in them, and that's what happens to those who follow them. Paul knows, and so he is provoked. Why? Why? Why is he provoked? Okay, well, he sees that these idols are false, and they're deceiving people. It's not just because they're doing a bad thing. A lot of Christians get really upset because the world's doing bad stuff. You know what the world's going to do? Worldly stuff. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't mean that we should not be bothered. It doesn't mean that we should not be compelled to speak against evil and wickedness, abuse. We should. But Paul isn't fundamentally stirred up or provoked because someone is doing something wrong. Is, is, he, is it deeper than that? Is it, is it deeper than, than they are breaking God's law? Think of Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4. Right, The very first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make an image of anything and worship it. Those are, that's the law. And he knows that people are breaking. Is, is it the thing that's grieving Paul, that's provoking him, that they are breaking law, God's law? It's in the mix. But I don't think that's the fundamental issue. It's deeper than that. The reason that Paul is provoked is because he loves. He loves God. And because he loves God, he loves sinners. And therefore, he is stirred up and he must speak. It's not just that he's mad. It's not just that he's disgusted at seeing blasphemy. Because Paul, listen, Paul knows that he is called to love, created in Christ Jesus to love. He knows that it starts in Leviticus 18, love your neighbor as yourself, and it goes through the the teaching epistles. Jesus says it himself in Matthew 22, that this is the greatest commandment is to, to love the Lord your God, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is why he is grieved. You see, he, Paul loves sinners, because they are made in God's image. Paul and we all should love our neighbors, not because they're neighborly. In fact, that's, that's a, it's a weird thing about the word neighbor. We almost use the word, we almost reserve it for the, the, the good neighbors. Like, you know, you tell you it's my neighbor, you know? You change your tone if it's a bad neighbor, it's, if it's a bad example. But like, they're, like, hey, howdy neighbor, you know? Like, if you're gonna greet somebody as neighbor, like, you're not gonna call the guy that you hate neighbor to his face, you call him something else. But like the person that you like, you call him neighbor. Maybe, maybe we should start to think, uh, think about it like this, because I've been thinking about it like this. We're called to love our neighbors, right? 
Maybe it would be more helpful to us if we thought of it in terms of, I'm called to love my sinners. Because they are all sinners. All your neighbors are sinners, right? But if I, like, if I, it's just easier for me to get away with only loving some of them if I'm loving my neighbor. But if I'm thinking, I have to love my sinners, and who are those of the sinners around me? And they're my sinners because we're all a part of one race, the human race. We're all, we're all made in God's image, and we've all marred that image by our own sin. So, yeah, I'm supposed to love sinners. Not just, and not just the sinners that sin like me. Not just the sinners who sin the sins that I'm comfortably kind of glossing over. It's, we love... Paul's grieving idolatry because he loves. He loves them. And that love comes from a love for God. Right? It's because he loves the Lord that he loves those who are made in his image because they belong to him. They are his. Whether they know it or not, whether they believe it or not, they belong to the Lord. This doesn't mean that their sins are forgiven. They're not forgiven until they turn to Christ and receive God's offer of forgiveness. But they belong to him. They're made in his image. And therefore, they are worthy of our love because we are the same so if we love the lord and, and love those uh around us then we will grieve their idolatry not from a position of haughtiness not because we think we're better not because we're so smart we figured it out we aren't we were ignorant we were dead not just dumb and god gave us life he opened our eyes so that we could see and understand so we perceive their idolatry to be a negative, not because we're right and they're wrong, but because we all worship false gods until God's mercy shines upon us and delivers us from it. We mourn their false beliefs because we know that they cannot deliver. It cannot save. It cannot restore. It cannot redeem. And God is worthy of knowing, loving, worshiping, and obeying. So first, we grieve their idolatry. Secondly, if we love God and therefore love sinners, we will show them Jesus, right? To love somebody isn't just to be tolerant. It's not just to be chill, right? It's not just to be happy. Uh, it doesn't just mean that you're like, hey, happy, go like. To, to, to love somebody means that you seek their good and you're willing to sacrifice for it. And this ultimately means that we will show them Jesus. And this is what Paul is doing throughout the whole book of Acts. I mean, he's doing it right here. And what does he do? He looks for people and places, right? So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day and with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also converse with him. Okay, so he's finding people. How do you find people? You've got to find places, right? That's you've got to find... You're, there aren't any people without places. It's an impossibility. You can only find people in places. And so you find people in places where they gather, where they are having discussion. And so we know what Paul does. We've been talking about this. If you're new here, what Paul does is, what he likes to do is he likes to find the synagogue. A synagogue was a, was a building that the Jews would, would erect in various uh, cities and, and regions. And they would have the scripture there and the scripture would be read. And then there might be some teaching. There would be discussion about it. So Paul liked to go to the synagogues because that's where the Bibles were at. So we would go there and they'd read the Old Testament and then he would start showing them from the scriptures how it all points to Jesus as the Messiah who has come to save sinners. That was, what, that was his move, one of his moves anyways, one of his strategies. He loved to do that, but he wasn't just doing that. So he found that place, but then he went to the marketplace. He found another place, a third place you might want to call it. He goes to another place, and there he's talking to other people. Because in the marketplace in Athens is where people hung out 
They didn't just go there to shop. I mean, think about it. It's kind of like the mall, right? It's kind of like the mall. In the 80s, that, the good malls, not like what we have today. Uh, it was like the mall because people would hang out, you know, they'd, get, they'd, get the, they'd go and get like an album at Camelot Music, and then they would uh, they'd get a Slurpee or something and some curly fries, uh, and they would hang out in the food court and they would talk, right? And so here, they, they, these people would get together and they would share ideas and they would debate, right? There would be formal and informal conversations happening. It was a part of the culture. They valued this, right? They valued, <laughs> they valued the search for the truth almost more than the truth itself, it felt like, right? At least that's how I, I perceive it. And so he would go to the marketplace and have these conversations, right? Synagogue, marketplace. And who does he wind up talking to? Well, two groups are mentioned, the Epicureans and the Stoics. I'm not giving a lecture, and I, I really couldn't at this point give a deep lecture on the Epicureans and the Stoics, but I, I will say this. Um, there were a number of philosophical movements that were popular of, uh, in, in Paul's day. And so here are two are mentioned, and you've probably heard of the Stoics. If you don't know the Epicureans, I've gone ahead and summarized and alliterated some of their teaching. I'm exhausted because I don't do alliteration a lot. So here's, here's a way to think about it, right? So what did the Epicureans believe? Number one, all Ps, pleasure. They were like, let's, we got to get away from suffering and affliction and pursue pleasure, satisfaction, right? That was a primary goal for them. And with that comes peace of mind. The, the, it wasn't just physical pleasure, right? But but mental and emotional pleasure. They wanted to remove all of the de, sort of de destructive and distracting uh, aspects of, of, of mental uh, life. So they pursued pleasure. They pursued peace. Uh, number three, they were practical atheists. This doesn't mean that they didn't believe in the, the Greek gods. It meant that they didn't care. I mean, what I mean is, is that they didn't believe that these gods actually poked their fingers into time into space. They weren't involved in what the happenings of the world. So while they weren't atheists, uh, but in a practical sense, they were. They were what some Christians would call other theists, uh, deists, right? There is a God, but he never interacts. He doesn't, he doesn't poke his hand into our happenings. So they were like that. Uh, but they also believed, uh, number four, in people. They were really big on community, really big on not living life isolated and alone because they understood, and they're right about this, you're not made for that. And you're not going to find like true satisfaction apart from community because we're made for it. So that was, the, that was the Epicureans. And then there were the Stoics. And you've heard of the Stoics or you've heard of Stoicism. Even if you haven't read a book or listened to a lecture on it or a five-minute YouTube video or whatever, you know that a Stoic person is kind of perceived to be immovable in their emotional capacities or that they're, that they're stern or that they are stable emotionally. And what, what's really happening here with the Stoicism is they, they, they valued a few things. They valued virtue, right? So there would be a set of virtues and they let those principles guide them. They, they, they believed in, in an honorable life according to these virtues. They were big on self-control, Right? The Stoics were big on, listen, there's, there's going to be a lot of things in life that you cannot control, so don't worry about those things. Do not let those things rule you. Instead, focus on the few things that you can control. So they're big on responsibility, personal responsibility, doing everything you can to master yourself and therefore master your emotions. You should not be ruled by your feelings. Right? Instead, you rule your feelings. That's Stoicism. In, in a nutshell, by an amateur non-scholar, right? That's, that's stoicism. And I just mentioned these things because these are two 
fully fleshed out ideas among many in this city that Paul is now sharing Jesus. He's showing them Jesus. Where do we do that? Where do we show people Jesus today? Internet. Everybody's going to go, internet, right? It's going to be the internet. Like, yes. Okay, absolutely, internet. The good news is because... We have broadband, high speed. We can, we can show people Jesus through video and audio, not just through blogs, right? Um, so we can, we can do it all. Um, it, we can reach a large number of people very quickly. The bad news with the internet is that reaching people on the internet, I think is harder than reaching people in person. And that's because, and some of you do this professionally. Uh, this is because most of the people on the internet are terrible. Okay, what I, what I mean is most of the people talking about politics on the internet aren't really looking to engage in a discussion. Most of the people are looking to pick a fight or to prove someone wrong. The same goes for philosophy and religion. They have a, they, we have an idea, I wanna get it out there. I'm not really interested in listening or having a discussion. Now there is a smaller group of people that are actually doing that. They wanna have a dialogue. And even they, of course they hold their positions, they hold them seriously, but they're willing to have a good faith back and forth to compare ideas. Which ones are gonna hold up? It's a smaller group, so it's harder because you gotta to talk to more people to get to those people. But if you're in actual spaces where conversations are actually happening, those people are oftentimes, in my experience, more inclined to have a back and forth. And because they're not looking at a disembodied uh, person through a screen, right? It's just ideas. The, the relational and personal is more evident when you go to places. So where can we go where we can actually have conversations with people, where people are willing to talk? Because it's totally fine for us, if we're going to share Jesus, man, you can go knock on a stranger's door and be like, hey, I just want to tell you about Jesus. Totally cool. You can do that. I'm not doing that. But you can do that, and I'm for you doing that. I'm not going to do it. Because uh, in my experience, a knock on the door that is unannounced is never good. It's just never good. I've just, I've, most people that I know like, are uncomfortable with it. They don't want, in fact, we did a poll years and years ago. Went through, just hung up door knockers, and then, but we, we talked to people, and uh, they all told us, without exception, they hate it when people hang things on their doors. They hate it when people knock on their doors to tell them anything, just out of curiosity. So not wrong to do. I'm not going to do it. So I have to, I'm always looking for where do people go where they're willing to actually talk and talk to a guy like me. Like, where can I find that? And so for everybody, you're going to find different places if you, act, if you start to look. But it could be like a gamer's club. Like, I'm not a gamer, but like, you, there, there, are, there are places where people that play like Settlers of Catan, I don't know how to say Catan, they're like uh, Magic the Gathering. There are places where people gather to do that. And in those places, they're actually having conversations. There's book clubs, some coffee shops. Don't think just because it's a coffee shop, you can just start talking to people. Different coffee shops have different cultures. Some of those places, it's a work culture. There, nobody's talking. Uh, and then you have to really go individual. But some coffee shops cultivate and actually foster the exchange of ideas. What I have found in my life, and many of you already know this, but what I found in my life as I travel across the country for different events, I go to cigar shops. And it doesn't matter what state, it doesn't matter whether it's high end or low end, I walk into a cigar shop, I'm automatically welcomed, and every man that I, that I interact with is willing to actually talk openly about their faith, politics, uh, family, whatever. They're willing to actually have a dialogue. So I find good success there because I like some cigars, so that's, that's what I do. See, but looking for places where people are, universities, right? University, well, universities used to be an, like such an awesome place. There's a lot more hostility on university campuses towards some ideas, and uh, Christian ideas are certainly not as welcome as they used to be on university. But, but it's still oftentimes a really good place to go 
if you are good at crowds and people pushing back, if you can do so graciously, winsomely, with truth and conviction, that's a great place to go. There are a lot of places. Um, we have uh, one of our church planters. I don't know why I'm pointing over there. I have no sense of direction inside. I, I, that could be north. It could be south. Uh, it doesn't matter. So um, Tom Schmidt, one of our church planters, he's in Naperville. He does meetups. Right? And it, he did that right away. He's like, I'm going to plant, and I'm just going to have a meetup. And he'll do, like, ask a pastor. And I'm like, ain't nobody coming to ask a pastor. Oh, look at People showed up for that? Like, non-Christians showed up for that? And then he'll get other, he'll like, hey, we're going to discuss this theme. And then non-Christians show up to discuss, knowing that it's a Christian leading it. And again, to do this, you have to be willing to listen to these false ideas that other people have in order to better engage them with the truth. This is what Paul is doing, Right? He's finding the people and the place. But what does he do when he finds people in the place? What's his focus? It's Jesus every time. It's Christ. He's not seeking moral reformation. He's preaching Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that he doesn't address other things or that we can't address other things. We have to. We have a big book with a lot of truth in it, okay? But the focus, right, the drive is to get people to see Christ, to behold him, to ultimately repent of their sins and to trust him. The focus is Jesus. I mean, that's what it says here, right? It's in verse uh, 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's his dominant theme. And that's not just because he's Paul or an apostle, it's because he's a Christian, it's the dominant theme. That's his preaching. That's our message. Paul knows, I mean, he says this in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, right? I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. He says, uh, you know, we preach the word of the cross, right? That, that is the central message. When, when you go to 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance, right? So there's the idea. I delivered to you, I gave to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's his message. That should be our message. And I know, listen, I know what it's like to be a Christian in a, a hostile pagan world because I'm with you, I'm there. Now I'll be honest, I have an easier in with people because I'm a pastor. Because I could just be like, they'll ask, what do you do? And I'm like, well, actually, I'm a pastor. And they're like, stop. And I'm like, no, really, I'm a pastor. And they go, what kind of a pastor? And I go, Southern Baptist. And they go, you're definitely lying. No way you're Southern Baptist. And I go, no, we're Southern Baptist. And so, and then we, so I have an audience. It's, it's easy. They know I'm going to want to talk about Jesus. It is harder if you're not, because you, now you, you have to find a way to not sound in their ears like a lunatic by saying that you're a Christian, that you take the Bible seriously, like that you read it as God's word. But this is what we do, right? We focus on the central truth, which is incredibly hard for people to grasp, that the Son of God dies for sinners and grants us salvation by faith alone. Now, if this thing of first importance is what we're going to communicate, and if we are moved by love to do so, we should expect and not be surprised to be misunderstood did you understand the gospel the first time you heard it? I didn't. People just, listen, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, even just starting with like, you're preaching from a book that you believe 
God basically wrote, right? Now we know that God inspired human authors to do so and that is perfect, but God wrote a book and that we're pre- like this is crazy time for people that aren't raised in any kind of Christian tradition. So we should expect to be misunderstood. They clearly didn't understand what Paul was saying. They're like, come and explain it to us more. We're not getting it. This is kind of weird. This is, this, is, this, is, this is weird. So just come to the Areopagus. We want to hear more. Now, my question that I like to bring it back to, it's helpful for me, is to say, is to ask, why, what, what, why is Paul preaching? What's his motive? Like, what's compelling him to do this? Why should we, what should be the thing that moves us to show them Jesus? It's not duty. It's not because we're supposed to. Yeah, we're, we're supposed to testify. Like the, but that's, that doesn't... Duty doesn't motivate, it just is. Love motivates. Love motivates. I always think about it like this. The, the men that I know that have served our country in the military, even when they say, it was, it was my duty, it's really their love for country. They, they love their country, they love their, the, the, the people, and they want to serve. So it's love that compels. It certainly is the case for Paul and for Christians, right? Not duty, but love. Why? We love God. And because we love God, we believe he is worthy of all worship and reverence and obedience. Like, he is worthy of that. So we tell others. We, 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 I don't think we should first be telling people about Jesus because we love them. I think we should first be telling G- people about Jesus because we love Jesus. He's worth being known. He's worth being made known, even if they reject him. But then secondly, we tell people, we share Jesus with them because we love them. Right? We love, we love God. And it, what we're saying is he is worthy of me sharing this message with you. And we love the lost. The Lord is worthy and the lost are needy. Right? They're like us. And unless we or somebody else takes the time to actually share the gospel with them, how can they be saved? This is why we preach Christ. It should come from a place of love. And if you're doing this, if if you're going to grieve over the idolatry of people in the world and you're going to show them Jesus, you'd better be ready for dialogue. Because it's not just going to be, if you're actually going to engage, it's not just going to be uh, uh, hit and run. Hit them with the gospel and get out. That happens sometimes, like if you're on a plane or a bus, right, or uh, maybe you have a short opportunity and you might not have a chance to follow up. Um, and there, there's, you can track bomb, give people tracks and run away. All that's fine. But oftentimes, if you're going to be sharing Jesus with them, uh, you're going to be in, taken into a dialogue. Things are going to stretch out, right? They're going to have more questions or they're going to have accusations. You're going to have to learn how to defend your faith, how to articulate the gospel and the truths of God's word in a way that they can understand. Right? And we see this happening here because what do they want to do? They want to take Paul to the Areopagus. They want to go to the Areopagus, right? What's the Areopagus? Areopagus was this sick institution of the day, right? It was multi-use. It was a courthouse. Uh, they, uh, they, they passed, it was like a legislative branch. They would like pass laws there. Uh, they had public debates. There was a lot going on there. And they said, Let, let's, go, let's go there. Let's go to the debate center. We want to hear more. I mean, that's what they're saying, right? 
We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So what you see is curiosity, right? Curiosity. Curiosity is good. But I just want to warn you, if you're, if you're sharing the gospel with people and they're, they're asking questions, this is exciting. We get really excited. But if you do this enough and you do it long enough, you'll realize that most people, for most people, curiosity does not lead to conversion. For mo- most people that hear the gospel, in my interactions, certainly, don't go from curiosity to From curiosity, yeah, that's good. They're asking questions. Now, listen, conversion is always preceded by conviction, and conviction, I believe, is always preceded by curiosity. So it, it can follow, and we should pray for it and hope for it, but don't, but don't be discouraged when they hate you at the end of it, and don't let that be the determination of how you respond to them. They can hate us, but we love them. Why? Not because they're lovely, not because they're kind, but because God made them. They're made in his image. And we love God, and so we love what he has made, and we love them. We seek their good. You gotta be ready to dialogue. You know, the thing about dialogue is that it takes patience, right? It takes patience, because you're, you're talking to people. Ooh, talking to people. And it takes patience. And you know what powers patience? Love. Because patience is long-suffering. That's the old word. It's the better word, long-suffering. And how do you suffer long? If you love. Love powers our patience and enables us to, to, to continue to dialogue and work with people that do not yet believe, who are living ungodly or immoral lives. And so here, I guess here is where I want us to land as we're gathered together today. And we could even think about us in sort of two groups, maybe. Because maybe you're here and you're not a believer. You're not a follower of Jesus yet. I pray that you will be. But maybe, maybe you're not yet. Or maybe, and I know many of you here at Redeemer, Redeemer family for sure, are followers of Christ. If, you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then I would ask you, have you heard the gospel? I don't just mean today. I mean, have you heard that God loves sinners like you? That Though your sin has created this gulf, this hostility between you and God, he hasn't left you there. He extends to you an offer, an invitation to receive his grace and his kindness through Jesus Christ. And if you will believe in his son, your sins will be forgiven and you will be accepted forever by God, made new, continually reformed, understanding your purpose and your identity. If you've heard that, the exhortation would be, take it to heart. I know what it's like to hear the gospel and to finally begin to understand it and still not believe it. Still, it's just like, I, I remember wanting to believe this and I couldn't. I would tell my pagan friends, like, I want to believe. And they'd be like, yeah, I can't. Like, I know, I don't know why. I, just, I can't do it. So I know what it's like. I, I pray that you would consider the gospel, consider your need and trust Maybe you need to consider your idols. That might be a helpful thing to do. Do, if you mean, if you aren't worshiping Christ, then something else is ultimate. Something else is first. Something else is number one. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your career. Something is ruling your life. You are a servant to someone or something. And until it's Christ, you are lost. So understanding 
What the idols are is a good step. But if I can, I just want to transition to Christians for a minute, followers of Christ, and say, uh, you can have idols as well, right? In fact, I would say that we all are tempted by various idols, whether they are, you know, externally or in a worldly sense, good. Are you being led by idols, tempted by good gifts that are supposed to point you back to the giver of those gifts? Can you identify them? And today, most importantly for the Redeemer family and for Christians, figure out what your heart posture is toward the world. Because yes, we think of the world as a system that stands in opposition. We're not good with the world in that sense. But if we're talking about the world as people, then yes, we should love. You don't love the world as a system, but you love the world as as people, as individuals God has brought into your life. Your heart towards them should be Warm, not because they're good, because if your heart was warm them only because they're good, then your heart would be cold towards them when they're bad. And the worse they are, we think like, well, it's just getting too, it's too much, it's too much. I think what we see in, in Christ is that he was always warm towards the lost, even when warning them to flee from the wrath to come. He holds out hope, not just condemnation. And we can do that too if we understand the love of God for us, our love for him, which should give birth to love for sinners. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would encourage us this Sunday, Lord, that that we would know that you forgive all of our sins, the worst of them, the ones that that are small, that can send an individual to hell, as well as the ones that are embarrassing, that we would never want publicized. Lord, you forgive all of our sins through Jesus Christ. And because of this, we not only have peace with you, but we should have a passion to share that good news with other sinners like us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us an increase, a growth in faith, in love, in godliness, but also in number, as others come to believe as well. In Jesus' name, amen.